Welcome to Genesis chapter 4 Holy Bible Study. Today we're going to talk about Cain and Abel, and we're also going to talk about tithing and innocent blood, the name of the Lord, and so much more. So enjoy it. God bless y'all and Godspeed. And she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord, Lord there being Yahweh. Okay, when it says Adam knew his wife, here the word knew in the Hebrew means that he knew her intimately. It means that he had sexual relations with her. A cross-reference of that word knew uh, is found in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 25 when it's speaking of Mary and the virgin birth of Jesus, it says, Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Obviously, it doesn't mean like we would think it means today. Joseph didn't know her. Well, of course Joseph knew her. What it means is that he did not have sexual relations with her until she brought forth Jesus, gave birth to Jesus. So that is our scriptural proof for the virgin birth. And verse 2, and she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we find here that Abel was a shepherd, and Cain was a farmer. And verse 3, in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, God did not have respect. And Cain was very wroth, meaning very angry, and his countenance fell. Okay, I'm going to jump into my notes here. So Cain brought an offering. Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. So Cain brought something to God only because his father Adam had commanded him and Abel that they ought to do so. And so Cain basically gave what he felt like giving. He didn't really go above and beyond. He just gave whatever he could give just to tell his dad he gave. Meanwhile, Abel brought the best, the firstlings of his flock unto the Lord. So he not only gave an offering as his father had commanded him to do, but he gave God the best that he could. So you could say that he went above and beyond in giving to the Lord. Now, this real quick brings me to the subject of tithing. I'm going to try to make this teaching as quick as possible, but it is going to be a big teaching. Um, God commands us all, Jews and Christians alike, to give 10% of our income or increase in thanksgiving to him for his provision. And as an act of faith, that he alone is our provider, and that we trust that he will continue to provide for all that we need. Now, every believer should honor our loving Father in heaven by giving back to him at least a tenth of what he has provided for us. At least. Now, you are not required to give more, but there should also be no excuse for you to give less. Now, if you can afford to give more, do not be slack in giving back to the Lord, because be sure that he'll multiply it back to you threefold, sevenfold, tenfold, even a hundredfold. 
Those are his promises in his word. Now, for those uh, such as Christians today who say, oh, those are old Jewish laws of tithing and we don't have to do that, I'm going to give you about 25 pieces of scripture here that speak of God's blessings that will come upon our lives when we tithe. Not just Old Testament, but also New Testament. So yes, Christians, I believe, are commanded to give back to God and to tithe. So, I want to prove that it is a duty of both Jews and Christians alike to tithe to charity. And whether that charity be giving to the poor and the needy, or to those preaching the gospel, or to supporting God's chosen nation of Israel... However you choose to tithe and give charitably of the money God has blessed you with, in turn, you're giving back to him. And scripture says you're honoring him. Now, I'm not going to read every verse because, like I said, there's over 20 of them. So I'm just going to list them for you. You can write them down and you can go back and check all these verses out in the Holy Bible for yourself and see how powerful tithing to God is. We have in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. In chapter 28, verse 22, Leviticus, chapter 27, 30, Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, 14, 22, 15, 7 and 8, 16, 17. And then we have Proverbs, there's a bunch in there too, 3, 9 and 10, 11, 24 and 25. 14, 31, 19, 17, 21, 13, 22, 9, 28, 27. There's a few in Psalms that I could find. 37, 26, and Psalm 112, 5 and 9. Malachi 3, verses 8 and 9. Matthew, there's a couple in there. New Testament. Remember now, we're in New Testament now. So for all you Christians who say we're not supposed to tithe, these are all for you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 4, and Matthew 10, 42. Mark 12, 41 to 44. Luke 6, 38. Luke 21, 1 to 4. 2 Corinthians 9, 5 and 7, and 11. Galatians 6 9, 1 Timothy 6 17 to 19. Now that's two dozen verses to get my point across that God wants us to this day to still tithe. But if you study the subject of tithing in your Holy Bible for yourself, you'll find there are so many more verses. That's just a handful. My favorite verse of them all is Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. And if you can actually hear this verse, hear with your ears, listen to this verse, and still not be inspired and want in your heart to give back to God, then you just might not be as saved as you think you are, because you might not love and appreciate God as much as you should. Again, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. This is God speaking. Bring you the whole tithe. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, into God's house, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. When God says prove me, he's saying test me. And test me now herewith, saith the Lord. 
if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Again, I'm going to read it in a little more language you might understand today outside of the King James. Bring you all your tithes into God's house, that there may be meat in his house. And test him now in this. Test the Lord. Test to see if his word and his promises are faithful and true, like I have found that they are, and like so many other believers across the world, always find that they are. Test him in this. If he will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessings upon you beyond measure that you will not be able to contain them, you will not have room enough to contain them, his blessings are going to be that good. If you tithe to him faithfully. All he's asking is 10%. You know that the government sometimes takes more than 10%. Do you know that out of your paycheck, you're um, giving maybe $100 of that or $200 of that to your gas bills, to your electric bills, and to your cable bills. So God's saying, when you get paid, give me a tenth, just a little chunk of that paycheck, just to say thank you, God, for providing this paycheck for me. Meanwhile, everybody else of the world is taking about half to 70% of that paycheck. So for all of you who faithfully pay your bills, your gas, your electric, your cable, your phones, whatever else, but you don't set aside that little 10% for God, you're going to keep on making whatever you're making. You're going to keep on living however you're living. You may even maybe have some financial hardship along the way. Why? It's not because you're not working enough hours. It's not because you don't make enough money. It's not because you're not managing your money right. It's because you're not giving God what is due Him. Once you start to do that, even if your hours get cut, even if you lose your job, you watch and test God in this, that He will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessings upon you beyond measure, threefold, sevenfold, tenfold, a hundredfold. If you are faithful to His Word, He will be faithful to you. I've been tithing now for almost 15 years, and I can promise you, friends, financial stability. I may not be rich, but I'll tell you, I've never been poor. Even when things look rough, even if I, you know, was out on a job with a, a medical problem, or even if I had lost a job, most people would be the end of the world. They'd panic, but you know what? I remembered I faithfully paid all my tithes, and I said, you know what? The Lord will provide. And out of nowhere, from over here, or from over here, something would come in. The tax return would be two, three times bigger than I expected it to be. Or, you know, a loved one would say, hey, you know what? I said I was going to buy 10, 20 of your books, and, you know, I never got around to it. Here you go. It's just, I'm telling you, friends, the Lord will provide enough for you at just the right time when you need it. He may not provide more than you need, but he'll always provide what you need. Like that old Rolling Stone song. You may not always get what you want, but you'll always get what you need from God. And most of the time, he gives you a little bit more, just because he's such a good, merciful, gracious God to us poor sinners. Now, the whole point of this, do not rob God. Give back to him what is due him according to what he has provided to you. Because your job didn't give you that paycheck. God gives you that paycheck. It says in the Holy Bible, it is God that gives us the power to get wealth. So he's the one who placed you in that job. No matter where you're at, you're where he wants you to be. 
And if you feel something in the back of your head just constantly every day when you get out of bed saying, this isn't what God wants for you, he wants someone else for you, then the Holy Spirit's trying to tell you maybe you are in the wrong spot. But until you get out of that spot and where God wants you, he's still going to provide for you. However he can. He's going to make sure every bill gets paid, that your lights don't get shut off, your gas doesn't get shut off, you have enough to take care of your little kitties and your puppies and whatever else you need to do. God is going to provide. Just obviously don't be spending on his, all his money on sinful stuff, because if you do, you know, you may be un, unwillingly cursing yourself. So you just got to be careful on what you spend your money on. Don't be go blowing it all in the bars. You know what I'm saying? And you just got to drink it all away. It's not that he didn't provide for you, it's just you're wasting it. I used to do that. I used to get a paycheck, 300, 400 bucks in my waiter jobs and... Right after work, we'd go up to the casino or the strip joint or the bars in my sinful days and walk out the next morning and a whole week's worth of bills was gone in one night. So it's not that God doesn't provide for you, it's that sometimes we're not wise and we do not spend it wisely. Now understand, by shorting God 5% this week out of that 10% because you need, because you need to buy that new TV or that new phone, or that pair of shoes, or any other earthly desires you may have, don't be surprised when your paycheck next week gets a little smaller, or in the near future. Maybe the government takes a little bit more than you are used to in the taxes. Or maybe you'll wake up to a few less hours on your next schedule, that you're used to working. One way or another, you will reap what you sow. You short God, you're shorting yourself. Now, even though we may be, God is not bad at math. He knows every last penny that he has ever given to us. And he knows every penny that should be returned to him. If you can give more than 10% of your income one week, because the Lord blesses you with a great harvest, then give him a bigger tithe at that time. Trust me, I've done it. Give him 20-25% if you have the power to do so. Because that way, God forbid, if there ever is a week when you're just a little short to pay that tithe in the future, he will remember the time when you went above and beyond what you were called to give. God is faithful and just in all his ways. So give to God before you pay your bills. Most people will say, oh, what? i got to pay my gas, i got to pay my electric, i got to pay this and that. God's the one who keeps your lights on. God's the one who keeps your gas running. So you put God first, he's going to keep that stuff running. Trust me in this. Trust me. And again, he's only asking for 10%. So don't tell me, oh no, if I give God 10%, I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. If you give God 10% and you're not able to pay your bills, you're not making enough money to pay your bills. At the end of the day, give to God before you buy your wants, which some of us sometimes consider needs. Give to God first. Take it from someone who's been there and who's done that and who has tied for the last 15 years. You will never be last if you put him first. You may not be rich, friends, but your cupboards will never be empty. Your fridge will never be empty. And your every need will be provided for. Trust me. I can testify that we serve a faithful God who is always right on time, all of the time. He is never late and never absent when we need his provision. If his provision is absent from your life then it is you who are doing something wrong, not him. It is never him. He is just fair and faithful 24-7, all the time. He always has been. He always will be. So never blame God 
if you don't have everything you need. Now, let's jump down to my other Tide notes here. Actually, that should do it for the Tide teaching because I think I basically said all that I need to say. So if you don't want to tithe after all that I've said, then that's on you. Don't come crying or complaining to God when you don't have enough to pay your bills, when you don't have enough to get by, when your fridge and your cupboards are empty. Don't go blaming him. Don't say, oh, woe is me. Why does God not like me? It's not that he doesn't like you. He's just faithful to his word. If you follow his word, you believe his word, and you stay faithful and true to his word, he will be faithful and true to you. But he's not going to break his word. So if you do, that's on you. You bring it upon yourself. Okay, so uh, Abel, God had respect unto his offering, because Abel not only gave what God required, but he went above and beyond. But unto Cain and his offering, God had not respect, because Cain basically just brought whatever he could just to tell his dad that he gave. And uh, then Cain was angry, because God was not happy with him, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? Again, God's saying, If you do what I ask of you, what I have commanded you, which would be well, will you not be rewarded? Will you not be accepted by me? So obviously Cain didn't do what he was required to do. And then God says, If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And unto you shall be his desire. And unto you it shall rule over if you don't rule over it. Meaning, we have power over sin. And God has given us the power to rule over it, not only through his Holy Spirit, but through Christ. So, if you allow sin to enter in, into your mind, into your thoughts, into your heart, then sin is going to rule over you. It's going to be the opposite. And when you get angry, when you get stressed, I've got a whole teaching on this, I'm going to go into it in a minute. That just breeds the sin, and the sin grows and festers up more and more. And you're going to see when that happens, at least to some very, very unfortunate things that you will do. And then in turn, that will always bring curses on you. So never let anger and stress and um, hostility or jealousy ever get the better of you. So now in verse 7, when it says sin lieth at the door, it's better translated in the original Hebrew as sin is crouching at the door, meaning that it's ready to pounce on you like a roaring lion would on its prey. And in verse 7, the word shalt, shalt in the King James Version, would be better translated as must. So God doesn't say you shall rule over your sin. He's saying you must rule over your sin. For if you don't, your sin is going to rule you, one way or the other. Now verse 8, I don't think I got there yet. Let's read that real quick. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Now we all know that story. Cain murdered Abel. But there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of people just read that verse, read right through, rest of the chapter, okay, Cain killed Abel. Cain's a bad guy. Abel's a good guy. It goes much deeper. There's so many more lessons we can, we can take from this situation in just this one verse. Cain's jealousy, jealousy, jealousy and hatred toward his brother caused him to murder Abel. 
Now remember what Jesus taught, that if we harbor hatred toward anyone in our hearts, then we have already murdered them in our hearts. That's a tough pill to swallow, I know, for a lot of people. But seriously, meditate on that. If you hate somebody, and if you're really that jealous of somebody, you despise them, you've already committed murder in the eyes of God. Yeah. Uh, once, once, I, once I really truly understood that verse, it changed my whole outlook on life. I'll tell you, the Lord said, you know, forgive somebody 70 times, 7 times. I just, you know, somebody does me wrong, I put it in God's hands, leave vengeance to Him. Don't dwell on it, don't try and take revenge. Don't be jealous of anybody, because it's going to come back and it's going to bite you. Now, just as lust of the eyes toward a woman or another man uh, leads us to commit adultery with them in our hearts, as Jesus said, so too... Hatred and jealousy will make us murderers in our hearts. So do you still think you're a good person? And that your good deeds will get you to heaven? In God's eyes, most of us are likely adulterers and murderers, given the definition of those which Jesus gave. Without Jesus, those sins will send every one of us to hell. And that leads me to some notes about Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf regarding verse 10. But first, let me read verse 9 real quick. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Like I said in the Adam and Eve chapter previously, when God asked these questions of people, God knows he's God. He knew he murdered Abel. So he's not literally asking Cain, Where is he? I can't find him. God knows where he's at. He is like he did to Adam and Eve. He's giving Cain a chance to repent of his sins and to ask for God's forgiveness. Just like Adam and Eve failed that test, Cain fails it even worse because they just pretty much blamed other people and denied you know, that it was their fault in the first place. Cain just blows God off. What are you asking me for? Am I my brother's keeper? Don't you know he's God? As I said in a previous study, you can't hide from God. He sees everything. He knows everything. Cain was just stupid here. Am I my brother's keeper? All right, verse 10. And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. This is powerful. Get it? The innocent blood cries from the ground unto God. From this, I've derived two lessons which I want to teach you, and you'll be wise to learn. If the blood of Abel cried out unto God, how much more does the blood of his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, not cry out eternally and exceedingly louder than that of Abel for us on our behalf? How much more does the blood of Jesus Christ not cry out to God than the blood of Abel ever did? That is why when we are washed and covered in the blood of the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus, our Father in Heaven feels an undying love for us, which leads Him to shower us with His grace, His compassion, His faithfulness, and His everlasting mercy. But only when we are covered and washed in that sinless blood which crieth out to Him. Lesson number two is that all innocent blood that is shed on the earth cries out to the Lord, i.e., abortion. Abortion 
is murder. And the blood of every unborn baby is crying out to God as we speak. I think it's over uh, close to 70 million right now babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. And Planned Parenthood has murdered, I believe, 8 million of those alone in something like just the past decade. Think of all the judgment God should have brought on us already or should be bringing on our nation right now. So when people complain, oh, why does God allow this disaster to happen or that disaster to happen? Or why, why, why is God such a mean God? He's not a mean God. He's a just God. He said, innocent blood will cry out to me and I have to take vengeance. How long has he been sitting on his hands saying, man, I... I want to give these people a chance to repent, but how much longer can my hands be polluted with this, this blood before I go down and take my vengeance? His patience is wearing thin, friends, and you want to be on the right side of the fence. So get to know Jesus today before his wrath comes down, before his judgments come down. And just like he did with the Israelites in Egypt, he will pass over your home and your family when he does judge this nation. But... I'm telling you, it doesn't matter who's in office, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, Democrats, in my opinion, lately are going to bring a lot more judgment on this nation than a Republican probably would. Either way, it doesn't matter who the president is. If we continue to allow babies to be slaughtered wholesale, it don't matter who's in office. It don't matter what political party has power. God's judgment is going to come down. And it's going to come down hard. So... Be very careful, friends, in your life in supporting baby-killing abortion peddlers like Planned Parenthood or supporting left-wing Democrats who advocate for abortion. Some of them these days are even advocating for infanticide, which is after the baby is already born. And they decide whether or not the mother wants it, and then they kill it on the table. It's just disgusting, friends. It's sick. And, uh, again, it's just, just provoking the Lord. Provoking them, poking them, poking them day after day. And eventually you, you keep poking somebody and prodding them, they're going to hit back. And, and God hits back much harder than anyone or anything you've ever seen or ever known. So America needs to repent and just do away with the sin of abortion once and for all. There are other ways. There's adoption. Unless it's saving the life of a mother, it should never, ever be an option, ever. And saving the life of a mother, that occurs in 1% of all abortions. 1%. But the other 99% are not done to save the life of the mother. And I write a big chapter about that in uh, my first book, The Signs of Our Times. So if you want to read what the Holy Bible says about abortion, I give you all the verses in there. And I give you all the statistics of just how uh, gross and abominable Planned Parenthood is. And, and how they're just murdering babies wholesale. So God forgive them. God lead them to repentance and to shut down. God forgive you if you're a Christian or a Jew voting politicians who support infanticide openly into office or who are saying that it's a woman's right to murder her body and her body comes before her baby, which is innocent blood. Be very careful, friends. It cries out to God. And verse 11. 
And God said to Cain, And now are you cursed from the earth, which has opened up her mouth, to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield on you her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall you be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from your face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that finds me shall slay me. Okay, real quick, I want to hit on verse 14. When he said, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth. He's saying everyone that finds me shall kill me. When he says, from your face I shall be hid. Remember that verse going forward, that line going forward. As I believe it's going to tie in with verse 16. From your face I shall be hid. Remember that. Now when he said, everyone that finds me, the question arises, everyone? How many people are on the earth at this time? Now from just reading the scripture, wouldn't it just be Adam, Eve, and Cain? Now that Abel's dead, you'd think just three of them. But the scripture interprets the scripture. So if you ever have questions, you go and you look through the previous chapter, the future chapter. You can go into future books of the Bible. They sometimes explain what wasn't explained back here. The Bible interprets the Bible. While God chose to highlight the births of Cain and Abel here in chapter 4, because of what happened between them, that incident, the murder, it doesn't mean that Adam and Eve hadn't already produced other children at this time. Some theologians and biblical scholars believe that there could have been other, son, other sons and daughters of Adam and Eve on the earth by the time that we get to chapter 4, before um, Abel and Cain are even born. Now I have scriptural proofs for that. Drop down to verse 17. All right? And Cain knew his wife. Where did he get a wife from? Did we read anything about any woman's name in here, about God saying, here's your wife? No, God didn't put it in there. He just didn't feel that putting the lineages in this chapter was that important. There wasn't too much in their lives that we're going to factor into his big story. The big story, eternal story of salvation of um, since Adam and Eve, God has always wanted to reconcile the human race to himself. And that all builds up, pointing to Jesus. Jesus comes, dies on the cross, resurrected from the dead, we're given new life. Now obviously, Revelation is where the, the final judgment happens. Did you believe? Did you not believe? Jesus comes back to save Israel and the Jews from being destroyed. So, just this lineage here, God felt they did not need to be mentioned. They, I mean, just as far as remembrance-wise goes, um, it really wouldn't do us any good for our faith really, to remember what they did. Obviously, they didn't do much. I'm not saying they did bad. They just didn't do much and not enough to get mentioned here. And uh, his wife surely wasn't Eve. So for anybody to say, oh, well, you know, maybe he was just sleeping with his mom. I mean, God is against incest. We're going to find going forward. He's going to say, you shall not sleep with your mother or your father or your aunt or your uncle or your brother or your sister or your cousin. Don't do it. So it's not incest going on here. And Eve was the only woman mentioned thus far. Because Cain, if you notice by verse 17, he was already banished from the land of his parents. So he wasn't anywhere near Eve. 
So his wife is obviously someone new. Um, God's word is clear that at least one daughter was born to Eve. But given that Cain is fearful of being slain by other human beings, we can conclude that she had given birth to many other children at this time. Because Cain says, everyone that finds me. Everyone, what is his wife going to find him and slay him? Are Adam and Eve going to find him and slay him? That's not possible because he left Adam and Eve. So there has to be other people right now on the earth. And uh, this just goes to show the great mercy of God and his desire for all men to come to repentance. He had every right and reason to slay Cain. Where he stood for murdering his brother Abel. So why didn't God murder Cain? Because of the nature of our Father in heaven, which is love and mercy. He was still going to dish out the punishment to Cain, but was going to allow him to live in order that he might repent of his wicked sin. And that reminds me of a verse later on in the New Testament, where God says, He's not slack concerning his promise of Christ's return to earth and of the book of Revelation taking place. He said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So people who say, oh, we've been talking about Christ's return for hundreds of years. It's never happened. It's, we're getting close, and it's going to happen. But God's not slacking his promise. He's not breaking his promise for all of this to happen in the future. That verse says, God is not slack in keeping his promise, but he is patient in order that he might give all men a chance to repent and come to knowledge of the truth. So for every poor sinner and atheist out there that is mocking God every day of their lives, living like hellions, believe it or not, God has not brought the end of the world, the Armageddon judgments upon the earth yet because of you. Even though most of us think he's going to bring it because of you, you might not be a recipient of that judgment if while today is still today, you say, you know what? He's that merciful. He'll forgive me of anything I've ever done if I just repent and come to him through his son. What in the world am I waiting for? Because he is patient and waiting for you to come to him. That's why his judgment isn't coming down. That's why Armageddon isn't breaking out all around us right now. The seven-year tribulation is not happening right now because of you. The poor sinner who's watching this, who wonders why they don't know God. This is it. Your opportunity. Come to him right now. Say, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Every sin I've ever committed, as I said earlier in this study. He throws your sins into the depths of the sea, the bottom of the ocean, to be remembered no more. If he forgets your sins, why would you remember them? So today, put all your sins behind you. Start fresh, clean slate, saying, Jesus, wash me, cleanse me in your precious, sinless, holy blood. Maketh me a child of God for the sake of your sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And reconcile me unto that loving, merciful, gracious Father in heaven, Yahweh, tonight. That way I know that in that day in the near future, when his judgment, his just judgment finally does come down, on an earth that is defiling his law, 
that is breaking his commandments, that is mocking him day and night. That way I know I can be raptured before that happens, or I can be kept safe through it. But I believe we're going to be raptured before that happens. So don't you worry. If you come to Christ tonight, if you say, Jesus, come into my heart, be my Savior, be my Lord, save me. In your holy name I pray, Jesus, you're saved. You're saved. If you speak it with your lips and you believe it with your heart, my friends, you are saved. Confess with your mouth, believe with your heart. And you just became a Christian. Now, it's your job to make sure you stay a Christian by getting in this book, reading this book, studying this book, getting closer to God, living for Him, putting your old sins behind you. Because again, clean slate, you start fresh tonight. Don't mess it up because I've lived on both sides of the fence, kids. I lived as the worst sinner on the block for over a decade, and I was cursed. I've lived my best to be righteous and holy for the Lord, and I still fall short so much. But in my efforts, my life has been so much more blessed. Complete opposites. Cursed, blessed. So you want to live for the Lord. You want to live by His Word. And you'll be more blessed than you could have ever imagined. Start fresh tonight, friends. Get cleansed. Get forgiven. Now, back to where I left off here. Now, did Cain repent? We'll never know, honestly. But he was at least given the opportunity, just like you have just been given the opportunity, all you poor sinners out there. And God is giving you that opportunity every day. So if you don't accept it tonight, the opportunity is still there tomorrow. And for those of you that think your sins are unforgivable, there is no sin, 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 no sin. I can't say it enough. I can make an hour study of just saying no sin. That the blood of Jesus cannot wash away. You can find that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin? All sin. Period. Exclamation point, says God. His blood washes you clean of all sin. So believe it, friends. Believe it, love it, and live for Him. All right. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto Cain, Therefore whosoever slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Alright, next question we have. What was the mark of Cain? There's a lot of books written about it, a lot of speculation. Honestly, I have no idea. Won't even guess. Couldn't tell you. No one does. No one knows for sure. No one ever will until we get to heaven because the Bible doesn't speak about it doesn't give us any hints about it, like it does about the mark of the beast. So unless some archaeological discovery is made in the near future, we're never going to know what the mark of Cain was. So don't believe the speculation and, and fantastical books out there or, or documentaries, because they're all just that. They're speculation, which is useless. It does us no good to speculate about it or about anything else that God doesn't give great detail about. Because it will just lead us down unbiblical paths, new age paths, that usually lead to demonic deceptions, which are contrary to the word of God. So stay away from all that garbage. Mark of Cain, we don't know. 
Alright, verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now to me, I've never really heard any other theologian or Bible teacher teach on this. And it's because, you know, obviously the King James Version, which was in the original Hebrew, is translated into our English now. So, you know, obviously the original word isn't exactly what it is in our English. But I've always just found it very interesting. And I mention it any time I study, um, you know, chapter 4 of Genesis publicly, whether on audio or video. Get it. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, so he left God's presence, and dwelt in the land of Nod. Does anybody else just nod, nod, nod? What do you think of when you hear that? To me, first time I read it, to me it symbolizes no God. Nod, no God. Because it just says he was taken from God's presence. So he's being sent to a place where there is no God. So. Obviously, it's probably not what Nod means. I don't know if that's what it's translated as. I've never really looked it up. But to me, it's just, it's symbolic. It's a nice thing to, to think about that, you know, Nod meant no God. He was he was separated from the Lord. Uh, verse 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. Now, this Enoch is not the same Enoch that you all have heard of. He's not the same Enoch that we're going to read about in the coming chapter, nor is the Lamech of verse 18 that we're going to read about the same as the Lamech in the coming chapter, who is um, associated with Noah. I believe he's the father of Noah. Those two, that Enoch and that Lamech we're going to read about in the future, are going to be sons of Seth, the righteous seed of Adam and Eve. The, the replacement of Abel. But this Enoch and this Lamech get it are descendants of Cain. So apparently these were just common names in the day of Adam and Eve, just like John, David, Michael would be in our day and age. They were just common names. So just be sure, as my first time ever studying the Holy Bible, I confused it to, and I got just way off track. I said, hold on now, they're doing these bad things, but then they're doing these good things. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It's because they're just common names, two different lineages, uh, two Enochs, two Lamechs, just don't confuse the two. All right, uh, Lamech of the line of Cain, mind you, was the first man to ever engage in polygamy by taking two wives. So as his father Cain was a wicked sinner and murdered someone, now, Lamech is the first one to commit the abominable sin of taking more than one wife. Because in the beginning, God said, a husband shall be joined to his wife. He didn't say be joined to his wives. He didn't say be joined to his husband. It wasn't Adam and Steve. He said he shall be joined unto his wife, his woman. Singular, not plural. So Lamech here was a poor, wicked sinner, just like his dad. Um, now, obviously, don't get me wrong, Adam and Eve, they were all sinners. It's just that Cain's line was exceedingly bad, exceedingly wicked. Alright, then verse 18, and then the Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives, the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Adah bare Jabal, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. 
So all the way back in the beginning here, friends, uh, I believe we're still within the first seven generations from Adam. We already have music on the earth, so that came in much earlier than I had ever thought or most people probably ever thought. We also find in verse 22 in Zillah, she bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer, and brass and iron. So brass and iron, these metals were all the way back, just after the Garden of Eden. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. Now, we find here that Lamech, much like his father Cain, committed murder. But it appears that he actually murdered two men. Now, there are commentaries that say possibly this was in self-defense. Because it seems here like he's repentant about it when you read the words, To my wounding or to my hurt. But um, theologians can't come um, to a straight uh, conclusion together, uh, agreement. Uh, there's some who say he was still a poor, wicked sinner. He meant to murder these men. There are others who say he did it on, a, on an accident. It was an accidental uh, murder. He didn't really mean to kill them. And otherwise, if he did murder them, now he's repentant about it. So um, it's a verse that definitely requires a lot more in-depth study uh, from a lot more of the original Hebrew language and early rabbis or whatnot. So um, I'm just going to leave it there. Sounds to me like he was repentant with those words to my wounding and to my hurt, but irregardless, he murdered two men. Hopefully he repented, but that's what we know for sure is that he did, like his father, murder some men. So I'll leave it at that. That's what we know. Verse 24, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly mech seventy and sevenfold. The Lord loves the number seven. It's all over the place with him. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to, to go through five to ten pages without finding the number seven mentioned. It's mentioned more so than any other number in the Holy Bible. The book of Revelation, it's all over the place. I actually had to make mention of the use of the number seven in the book of Revelation just because God uses it so much. The seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven plagues, the seven vials, the seven angels, the seven churches. I mean, seven lampstands. Sevens are everywhere in the book of Revelation. And God's number, Yahweh, Yahweh God, Yahweh El, Elohi Israel, I believe that his number is 777, because if you look at his number in the Hebrew, that's what it resembles. Why does God love the number seven so much? I don't know, he just does, but we're going to find out someday when we meet him in heaven. He seems to be very attached to that number. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So, Seth apparently means appointed, since she said, God has appointed me another seed in place of Abel. So Seth is going to be the leader of that new righteous line, whereas Cain is the leader of the wicked line. And so we know now that there's going to be two distinct lines that descend from Adam and Eve, a godly line and a wicked line. Seth's line, the godly line, is going to be whom Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, and the Lord Jesus Christ are all going to descend from, Seth. Whereas Cain's line, the wicked line, is going to be wiped out very quickly in just two chapters in the flood of Noah. 
Cain's line is going to be wiped out off the face of the earth. And in verse 26, when they began to call upon the name of the Lord, I believe that it means they began to look to God for his protection, for his provision, for his healing, for his blessings, for his presence in their lives. They began to have an intimate relationship with the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh El Arahi Israel, Yahweh Yahweh. That is the name of the Lord. And I'll tell you, God comes full circle because just right in the very beginning, the godly line, the first member of that godly line whom the Lord Jesus Christ descended from, his line began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we fast forward both towards later in the New Old Testament and um, in the New Testament. God says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's how we know Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ are one, because in the Old Testament, it seems to be referring to the Lord, Yahweh, whosoever calls upon his name shall be saved. But in the New Testament, we're told, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's how we know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, true God, forever and ever. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you going to do it tonight, friends? Are you going to call upon his name? Are you going to be saved? Are you going to take my advice that I gave you earlier to start fresh, become a new creation in Christ tonight? That's all it takes, calling on his name. Tonight, just as Seth's line began to call upon the name of the Lord, so too tonight you, at this time, can begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And your life will never, ever be the same. It's going to change for the better. Do it. Call upon his name. Repent of your sins. Get washed in Christ's blood. Get reconciled to our Father in heaven. And you'll be just as blessed as that line of Seth we're going to find is all throughout the pages of this holy... That'll do it for this study. Next week, we're going to do Genesis chapter 5. We're going to focus on Enoch. And we're going to talk about the very first rapture event in human history. So don't miss it, friends. Tune in next time. God bless y'all.